0: UX Podcast, episode 298. I'm James. I'm Pad.
1: And this is UX Podcast, balancing business, technology, people, and society. Every other Friday since 2011, and with listeners all over the world from, okay, Dominica to Sao Tome and Príncipe.
0: Ooh, I noticed that you actually had some help there. You've written out how you would say it.
1: <laughs> yeah, the thing is that even though we visited um, Portugal a fair few times during the years, but I haven't really got the hang of Portuguese. Um, so, so there we had a Caribbean island and a, a West African
0: island. Yep. And today, our dear listeners, we have for you a link show, uh, which is when James and I go off on two articles and uh, uh, try to dissect their meaning. Uh, We found these on our digital travels, and some of them have been this time found for us. And we have time for two articles. The first one out is how car culture colonized our thinking And our language. I paused there for for James to take over, but he he was too slow.
1: (laughs) Well, I I did come in exactly the same time as you, so arguably I was just as fast as you.
0: (laughs) That's a fascinating article about about language. Uh, It's actually from uh, The Guardian uh, and their bike blog, which is really interesting as well. Uh, And the second article out is Figma is making you a bad
1: designer. Now, this is an article that we've actually had in our short list of articles to discuss on this type of show for a, for a little while um but what allowed it to make the cut this time was the um the news that many of you will know um that adobe has um bought
0: figma for 20 billion dollars yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i love that figure <laughs> but we we're, we're going to get to that article later we'll start out with Car culture So how car culture colonized our thinking and our language
1: yeah, this is a this is a translated article isn't it this is an article that um, we found on the um, The Guardian um, which is a British um, newspaper website mm-hmm. um, originally written in Dutch um, by two. Um, Dutch authors. And Um, those
0: authors are Thalia Verkade and Marco Te Bromelstrott. Fantastic, pair. I have no idea if that's correct, but I tried. Better than me. And it was translated by Fiona Graham uh, of The Guardian. And diving in, (laughs) because I think we'll have some some examples to read out from this article, because I I just love it when I read something that has small nuggets of insights, that completely make me rethink and reevaluate my thinking processes, and realize how limited I am in my thinking sometimes.
1: And, and when you shared this article with me, about uh, one of the first things I thought about is that drawing that you shared before about the electric scooters and the pavements.
0: Oh yeah. So
1: even before I even read this article, I had I had that picture um, in mind. So I guess now we have to include that a link to that in the um, in the show notes exactly.
0: Um, uh, so as you might uh, feel has been suggested already by the title is that our thinking around cars is is somewhat controlled by, uh, systemic things in society. So the way we speak about cars is actually also centered on cars, which means that when we talk about other people or motorists or cyclists, we don't talk about them in the same way. We don't center them. Uh, so. Just the first paragraph of, of the article makes you think. When we block traffic from a street, like for a sports event or a street party, we say that the street is closed. So the street is closed when we when we block it for cars. But it's because, but it's only closed for cars. It's actually now open to people, uh, which is fascinating. It's
1: fantastic! <laughs> it's very fascinating. It's fantastic. Just that that first example, yeah. you you're just going, oh my god. We're just we're just framing this completely wrong. Mm. We've we've kind of focused on the, I suppose on the negative aspect. I suppose you could talk. I mean, well, maybe not negative aspect, but yeah, it just focuses on the wrong bit. It's a good thing for all these people and for the sporting event that the the street is available to them. Exactly.
0: And, and they go on to say that this is actually something that's only been uh, happening in the past century. I mean, previously streets have al- always been. For many things, for for talk, for trade, for play, for work, for moving around, and now it's about having helping cars <laughs> get from A to B as quickly and efficiently as possible, and that is what they mean has actually colonized our thinking. Uh,
1: yeah, the quote there is: um, "This idea is so pers- um, persuasive that it has colonized our thinking mm-hmm. around." Tra- oh, traffic and roads yeah.
0: and a large part of, of the text is actually is, is from an interview with a a transport researcher uh, <laughs> it's so funny because they also write meaning he's interested in traffic but not in cars <laughs> uh, is rolled on the Uh and he, it, one of the first things he says in the article is we speak of vulnerable road users and th- that's what we talk about and that's sort of the the, the cartoon with the in, mm. that you talked about there with, with these uh, e-scooters and, and having this small slice of an area, the sidewalk to travel on and, and pedestrians and people in wheelchairs. And then you have this big space for cars. And so we speak of the vulnerable road users because they can actually get hurt more easily, of course, than the people in cars. But they've only been vulnerable since the advent of fast traffic with big, heavy vehicles. So why don't we call those vehicles instead dangerous road users. So time and time again, throughout this article, they they highlight how the language centers around the importance of cars at the same time as they uh, show some statistics where you realize, well, hang on, how many people are actually affected by, for example, traffic jams? Uh, Well, because it's a Dutch article, the the example is is from the Netherlands, but only 15% 15% 15% of Dutch people are caught up in traffic jams each week, and only 5% of the population say it's a problem that affects them personally. 5%. Yeah,
1: 5%. I mean, that, yeah, <laughs> that's such a small figure um, that say they actually care about traffic jams yeah. effectively. Uh,
0: and, and that made me realize all, all the times I've seen news about traffic jams and hear news about traffic jams on the radio and how, how prevalent that is in our in media reporting. It's, it's such an impor- important thing. Because it affects a certain type of person, I believe.
1: Yeah. I haven't really... I mean, I've, I've thought about the fact that they don't talk so much yet on, on the radio in Stockholm about um, how how much traffic there is on the cycle paths, mm-hmm. which I, I know from talking to people who, b- who bike into town and back that it can be really bad at certain packed. times and yeah. certain mornings. Yeah. And I also was reflecting on... Uh, this morning, I was thinking about this, listening to the radio after reading this article, that we talk about um, how there are queues of traffic. You know, the, the traffic um, is backing up X number of kilometers or there's an X number of kilometer long queue as a result of an accident mm-hmm. and so on. But yet, trains are delayed. I presume that's because they're, they've got a timetable, yeah. so you're, you're relative to the timetable. But I was thinking, well, why don't we say that when you're driving along this stretch of road, um, your journey is delayed mm-hmm. by, currently delayed by 20 minutes rather than talk about the extent of the queue? Yeah. Because ultimately, that's what we're talking about, isn't it? Exactly. How how much longer is your journey going to take? And and whether there's a queue of five kilometers or not doesn't really tell me much about the actual impact on my journey. But that's the way you do it, isn't it? You talk about the length of traffic jams. Exactly.
0: So why are we talking about this on UX Podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, besides realizing how important language is, it's also about how do we change to get other outcomes? Uh, And the example here is... uh, from from these types of well speaking of other traffic uh, traffic or motorists or or people in traffic the train cyclists so the example is that there are people who travel a lot by bicycle to get to trains <laughs> which is why your example just now was really good uh, and but there's no there's no like category uh, or statistic for this these people because we don't talk about train cyclists people who travel to trains
1: yeah or at least in, in holland yeah. um or, or, or the dutch mm. um, politici- politicians mm. didn't talk about this um, as a particular category of transport or people using transport mm. there were people who bike on people who took trains um, so this was a this was a hidden category exactly. you could say the information structure and architecture of the of the transport categories didn't include these people who did this kind of journey. And wasn't it the case that this is a, a large number of people that fall into this category?
0: Yeah, uh, it's fantastic. A huge number of, of, of trips, of course, because, I mean, the Netherlands really is a, a biking uh, country. Uh, and I, I mean, if you've ever been there, you'll, you'll have noticed this. And so uh they i mean, they're really useful to get to trains and there is so there's such a good uh i mean pa- parking space for bikes is fantastic in the alone as well so so there really is a- actually an infrastructure there for them for this to be going on but you also need the, the trains to be on time for the full extent of the actual journey to to be completed uh and <laughs> actually what, what the article says is that these uh, the, the dutch railways they they've actually have these uh, public transport bikes that they offer and they continue to break new rental records each year. Each year they're uh, breaking records. Uh, But the planning website, uh, the Dutch travel planning website only recently adopted this door to door itineraries that include bikes and still with very basic functionality. So what you're looking for is how do I plan my journey from home to where I want to get with the bike journey included.
1: Oh, right. Because that is something that I know that Google Maps does generally offer, doesn't it? Exactly. It, it says, oh, you can get to that train station using a f- foot, um, bike, or I think sometimes even suggest scooter, depending on whose scooters they want to kind of promote. Right, my, but it doesn't mix. It won't
0: mix. Because if you want to go by bike first, train then, and bike later. It does. It does. So.
1: Whoa.
0: So I, I, I enter my home address and I enter a, a, so if I wanted to go from my, so where, I'm, uh, where I live, maybe where I go by bike right. first to the train and from the train, I want to bike to my studio. I could not do that because it doesn't have those connections.
1: Yeah, no, you're right. I can't, yeah, I can't think of when it would suggest biking to this station, mm. then taking the train and then walking at the other yeah. end, for example. Ah, yeah. Hmm.
0: And so what was happening is that there was actually an MP in the Netherlands, a Flemish MP, who, who started recognizing, recognizing this, because and, and, there was were articles written about it with this guy, Kager. And so he started employing this terminology with the, the train cyclists.
1: Dikot. Yeah, I think he was, wasn't it? His name of the politician, but yeah, he he adopted, mm. he co-adopted mm. the um the, the, the category of train cyclists um to help him um, push for extra funding. So he event- eventually got mm. um, a- additional funding for a scheme to help with this. And I think he also adopted the um the phrase um for wasn't it bus cyclists as exactly. well? Exactly.
0: Yeah. Mm. So what they're saying in the article here is that so this guy Kaga, he made an invisible group of travelers visible. Just by giving them a name, because there was no name before, and so th- now they're actually an official category, and now policies policies are taking them into account and are being actively developed, which is fascinating.
1: It's wonderful, mm. and for for us as designers, this this just makes me think about the the importance of the the words we use mm. uh, and the phrases we use in so many ways that it can it can really influence um, how our designs are actually adopted or, or uh, used in the, in, in the future. And uh, I think it also reminds me of the power of defaults. Yeah. maybe That comes back to mind again, that what we set as a mm. default, as well as what language we use on interfaces, um, can have profound effects mm. for society in some cases.
0: It also makes you think, because we often we do our research and we listen to the language being used by the people we we do our studies on and we use the language because we want it to be inclusive. We want as many people as possible to understand. So we don't often challenge the use of language where we Mm. often probably should try to think of other, when we change perspectives, we can change the language to allow people to see new things. Uh, And that has to be part of design thinking. I think when, uh, not getting stuck with the defaults but actually trying to evolve even the words we're using in our design interfaces
1: yeah and in this this example with um, uh, train cyclists and bus mm-hmm. cyclists um it it's um it's kind of a second order nudge in some ways that like you you've they've re- their research um uh, discovered or uncovered that there was this particular group of 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 well transport users that mixed transport styles um but They needed to nudge the politicians in a certain way. So by adopting that category, the politicians then became more um, open to understanding this group and giving some more funding to it. So we didn't actually, I guess this doesn't exactly nudge the behavior of the people doing the transport, not directly. It's using that to push a further change, further down the line.
0: Ah, interesting. One thing that struck me was when we talk about making up new words, it's uh, we often criticize politicians sometimes because they use new words to describe things in our environment, and then we accuse them of making up words. <laughs> but w- what we often fail to recognize is that all words are made up. <laughs> all words are made up. <laughs> we need to remember that always. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's interesting that c- can we actually escape Can we escape language? And that's something that I think a lot about when I actually, when I'm talking to you and and I'm being bilingual. And it's interesting when you and I uh, attend dinner events or something and everybody's bilingual and we we, we switch language mid-sentence. And it's interesting because I think you've said to me once, I often choose the word that I think makes the most sense or the one that feels that carries the most meaning of what I want to say. Recognizing that language is always going to be interpreted in some way by someone else and you're trying to always adapt it to that to that effect
1: yeah that it has its roots in not just the culture that you've been submersed in mm. but your entire life experience because all right. that is what adds you know layer upon layer of of nuance to 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 the words you well you present to everyone else mm. and you use
0: mm. So I think the big takeaway here is just, sure, listen to the words, listen to what people are saying, but then also challenge what they are saying and find new ways of saying the same thing. And look for who is not being included with the language being used.
1: Yeah. The, the, the article actually finishes off um, with the question of, of what kind of town do you want? Oh, yeah. Um, which is which is interesting, so, and also uh, we could rephrase it and, and reframe it to to maybe even what kind of internet do you want, or, or even ultimately what kind of world do you want? Because yes. it, it's it's not just limited to to transport mm. um, in the Netherlands, um, in a town. Mm. This um, this I think you can you can pull you can abstract and pull um, apart. Yeah, it to, made
0: me think a lot about ethics and how I can rephrase things to help people understand working towards something that is value-driven, rather than data-driven. Data-driven is one of those words that's become so uh, hmm. ubiquitous in, in the design world now. Oh, what, we're so data-driven, and that's supposed to be a positive, and it isn't always.
1: <laughs> no. Computer says yes.
0: <laughs> now, we are going to talk about Figma.
1: Yes. Now, as we... Alluded to at the start of the um, show. The um, this has been an article that we've 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 had on the list for a little while. Um, I mean, yeah, it was it was one that was written um, at the beginning of the summer, I think in June. Um, and it's Figma is making you a bad designer um, by Emily uh, Schmittler, um uh, who is um, director of product design at Included Health. But what really kind of oh, I suppose pushed it into this show, um, is the the news this week, um, that uh, Figma has been bought by Adobe. Mm. And this has been a big bit of news. Um, Not only because um, Adobe, have they're going to pay $20 billion for Figma, which um, is an absolutely astounding amount of money. Um, And I think Jared Spool, he he um, asked the question about, well, you know, if, if Adobe had $20 billion to spend on a design tool, why didn't they kind of get there an, an army of 9,000 designers or whatever to work flat out on creating the ultimate tool and to do it for cheaper? I um, think
0: I also saw, I saw a jo- Jared Spool <laughs> writes, uh, Adobe is where all great design tools go to die. <laughs> <sighs>
1: yeah. And. There is a bit of truth yes. in that. If you if you feel the pulse of, for example, Design Twitter or the Design Community this week after this news broke, <laughs> um, there weren't a lot of really really happy people. Is my you know my quick gauge of of how that seemed to be. Yeah. There was a lot of people not really happy about this, um which is which is interesting um because I suppose you know me and power uh, over the years we've talked about it. We've even interviewed people about it. And Kate Rutter, when we talked to her, we, we chatted to her about um, lifelong learning and how design tools come and go. Mm. And they do. They really do come and go. Um, but the, the thing with Figma and being bought by Adobe and the worry for a lot of people is that um, Figma had, this is my understanding, again, of, of what people have said out there, is that it's not just about Figma as a tool. Um, Figma had a freemium model for their tool. So you could use Figma for free. Mm. Um, and it also was, um, or is, sorry. <laughs> is. So, Speaking of it, so in tenser, it in the past tense. not talk about the past tense <laughs> if it's already dead. God. Um, <laughs> anyway, as, as well as having a freemium model where you could actually use the tool for free, um, then you also could use it via the web, which means you can use it from a Chromebook. You can use it from um, a Windows machine. You can use it from any platform that can run a modern web browser you don't need to have a mac
0: and also a big big point is if you're traveling and don't have your computer with you you can go to a library and finish your design
1: yeah Mm. so so basically figma has has been has opened Mm. the door for many designers outside of that elite group of mac owning adobe license holders Mm. who are the kind of the uh, sketch as well was was um mac only Mm. but but you know if you think about traditionally the design tools, mm. they have been a really elitist thing that it's only people with very expensive equipment and a very expensive license mm. could actually use a lot of these tools. Whereas Figma made this open to to a lot of people that hadn't previously maybe been able to to use a design tool of this standard and quality, which might be going now. A lot of people are worried about the fact that it will go into the Adobe world and it will then become part of the Adobe licensing model. Exactly. Um, and that's a very different thing. Mm. Anyway, that was preamble. <laughs> Fantastic. That wasn't actually the article. <laughs> Not completely. Hmm. Um, there are aspects of what we just talked about in the article as well.
0: And so this article by Emily Schmittler uh, from June. <laughs> I, I, I just love this article because it's, it, it resonates so much of... What I, I'm thinking always around these tools when uh, thinking of design schools and the and students are so panicked about what tools they need to learn uh, and realize when they come out, well, depending on where they start working, that it really isn't about the tool. It's about the process. It's always about uh, the outcome of your work. And, and the tool isn't the main thing. It is. You're
1: absolutely right, but at the same time, organisations keep asking. They keep asking. Well, I mean, the
0: job ads keep asking for it, so I understand yeah. their worry. Absolutely.
1: Exactly. It's, mm. a, there's a there's a loop mm. there. There's a, a negative spiral, mm. I guess, in some ways that the you know the job ads ask for these tools like Figma, so they want to learn these tools like Figma. But in the opening part of the article, um, it it says, um, well, um, just as my lovely professors um, said. When she was at design school, um, knowing how to wireframe or to mock up in a particular tool, hundred percent did not matter. In fact, all the projects I've done in those tools, I didn't particularly like. Despite all my effort, they ended up looking templated with little new or interesting thinking. Yeah. They, she didn't. She got the feeling that it, doing all this work in these high fidelity mock up tools,
0: didn't ultimately um, achieve what she was. Hoping to, mm. yeah, that's a great way of putting it. She didn't even use these in her interviews uh, for work. Uh, yeah, it wasn't included in part of her portfolio. Yeah, exactly. Um, interesting.
1: But um, she was, goes on then to say that um, it's after that she decided that um, if I couldn't do my job with pen and paper or whiteboard and marker, then I wasn't a very good designer. Um, to this day, I find the sentiment um, to be at my advantage. So here she's talking about the mindset of of being sketch first, mm. um, as opposed to being oh, design tool first. that like you jump and when you say sketch tool, first, careful now.
0: Stream. Sketch first means Ooh, pen and paper yeah. first.
1: God, what a clever <laughs> name they gave that tool. So yeah, um, so so drawing something <laughs> is that okay for me to say?
0: Drawing you is, can do is, digitally as well. You you actually mean pen and paper, don't you? But I draw on the iPad, so that it's sort of a hybrid.
1: Yeah. Oh, say back to words again, mm-hmm.
0: Poe. Anyway, but doing low something low fidelity is what we're saying, really.
1: Doing something yeah. away from um, oh, a high fidelity design tool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably what we're we're talking mm-hmm. about. Um, so, um, tying into what we said about design tools and and how they come and go, she um, shares a video from um, April 2019, I think it was, uh, which is about three years ago, and, um. In this, it's called "How to Pick the Right Prototyping Tool," and there's a point in that video where it shows lots and lots of um, of tools. Uh, it has it on like a um, a scale of um, of of uh, how high fidelity they are and how easy they are to use. Mm. And this t- this picture, this chart includes more than a dozen design tools um i haven't counted exactly how many but there's there's at least 12 to 15 design tools on this 16. Um, slide <laughs> i just counted. 16. well done pa yep good thank you 16 yeah. and in amongst that 16 there is no figma yeah.
0: <laughs> i love that it's
1: <laughs> april 2019 and there is no figma when we get to if, you, if we wanna whiz forward now to 2021 figma has been declared as the most common prototyping tool or design tool that we use in the design community full stop Mm. so in less than two years it's basically completely taken over the market and then after three years it's now been bought by Adobe for 20 billion (laughs) pounds but it's interesting though that this that's how quick things change in the design tool
0: world and that's what you need to remember because the tool that's popular when you're in school is not the tool you're going to be working with later on
1: (laughs) It's, it's definitely not going to be the only tool you work oh, on. Oh,
0: no, exactly. Um,
1: during your, your career. Mm. Um, yeah, it's probably not going to be the only tool you work on during your first job, um, arguably.
0: I'm not going um, to read them out, but I made a list because after this article, I made a list of the tools I could remember. I mean, there are many more that I could remember that I'd used over the years, and it, it's uh, 18 of them. Yeah. Uh, and oh, two, two, of, two of those oh. were bought by Adobe uh, Macromedia Dreamweaver and Macromedia Fireworks were both bought by Adobe back in the day.
1: yeah no i I don't even want to start to think about how many different tools have been involved Mm. during the years but you're right it's um that that slide showing 16 Mm. um is a pretty good indication of just how many are around at any particular um point but um um so these tools like figma and sketch um are what um, Emily points out there is they, they do have things like built-in libraries, um, so designers can include pre-made components really quickly in designs, and and whole teams of designers can work off a single source of truth to keep designs um, consistent mm. um, across many files and many screens of pages and so on. Mm. So. And prototyping um, has become, um, uh, prototyping itself has become easier with, with integrated um, or um, inbuilt capabilities. Um, and Figma now has, has a whiteboarding tool, another collaboration tool. You can chat and work simultaneously on, on designs. So to quote her, it really is awesome. Um, with these robust capabilities comes a very strong gravitational pull for designers to work solely in these tools. And that's a big problem. Yeah. If you sit down to build something with a box of Lego, you're likely to take your inspiration from the Legos in front of you and build with what you have. Doing this over and over again, you'll get really good at building things with those particular blocks.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that question. Which, yeah.
1: which is where we get into the some of the payoff now of what um what Emily's trying to say here. That's with these tools and with these lovely libraries of, mm. of pre-made components, then you're starting off by pouring all the Lego out on the floor and going, what can we build? Mm. As opposed to going back and saying, what do we need to build? And realizing the ultimate? Yeah.
0: And realizing, oh, I have some of the blocks I need, but I need some other blocks that aren't in front of me. So I need to go get those before I can build what I want.
1: Yeah. In mm. some ways, this is related to the first article. Mm. Traffic, cars. Yeah but we don't see um, train cyclists Yeah, because they the there wasn't a piece of lego yeah. for train cyclists exactly. so we had to think of the bigger picture mm. and then produce that that phrase mm. to put into the system yep. so you know um, if you i mean it goes on if however you draw a couple of pictures of what you might like to build first then you sit down with the Legos you might find that you have some of what you need but you also need a few new blocks to accomplish your creative goals mm. so start by imagining what's best for the people you're creating for um, and use the components that are appropriate um, and this is a creative muscle says emily mm. that is important to flex regularly so the implication here is that by by just using tools like figma all the time mm. you're you're not getting the the design exercise. Your brain isn't getting that that creative exercise that it needs um, to produce what we should probably be
0: producing. You can get really creative with solving problems within the constraints of that tool, but you'll never go beyond the tool for obvious reasons because you can only do what the tool can do.
1: (laughs) Um, Granted, I'm going to to, um, acknowledge that um, maybe with the role you have in the organization you have, that that might be exactly what you have to do. You are producing UI designs at speed to deliver to an organisation, mm. which is a a role that you might have. Um, and I think what we're saying here is that it might not be the necessary the um, um, oh the ideal ideal role to have in your design. I that, process but what you're saying is that
0: it's it's uh, uh, organisation centric rather than human-centric, where it's, yeah. it's good for the organization that you can move at speed, as you said, but it's not always good for the person you're building for, which is sort of why we got into this business uh, from the get-go.
1: Yeah. Um, so Emily goes on as well to um, talk about some of the other disadvantages with high-fidelity high mock-ups. And she says that high-fidelity mock-ups can actually scare teams Uh, there's three quite fun examples she gives it's like one way in which a high fidelity mock-up can scare will be whoa that's lots of effort Mm. because they see kind of the finished design as such and think Mm. this high level idea that you're just suggesting would be just too much to do Mm. um and another reaction you might get is whoa how long did this take you to 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 make (laughs) because it looks so finished so it must and they think about how long time it would take to implement so they project that onto how much time you mm-hmm. must have spent pulling it all together.
0: Exactly. Remember a balsamic. I mean the whole yeah. the whole point of using balsamic was that it looked like a sketch.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you could concentrate the conversation around the concept. Yeah. And that comes into the third mm-hmm. point that she uh, said of why of how they might scare people mm-hmm. is or rather the consequence of, of high fidelity is the people can get really trapped on tiny details linking what you said about Basarmic, the tool that was very sketch-based, mm. um, very yeah, pen and paper-based in its appearance, um, there be a small detail that looks very finished, and you get kind of, say, oh, well, how does that work? Why is it there? Why does it look like that? Um, instead of keeping the conversation and the discussion to the, the high-level idea, the concept
0: mm. level. Exactly. You'll, people, you'll, people will be saying, this looks really nice. We could move that over there instead of thinking out completely outside the box, finding new Lego pieces and thinking of what should be put in here based on what we know about what we're trying to accomplish. So um,
1: by diving straight into Figma or some of the tools um, to mock up a solution, your creative solution space has been eliminated. The team has experienced design as solely the creation of mockups. And there has become an obvious, nearly done path forward that isn't all that thoughtful. It's progress over perfection. Let's get to work. Mm. That's a that's a summary of, of three points from Emily's article. Mm. I oh, I mean I mean me and you per though, I mean we've we've been pushing pen and paper. Huh, excuse the pun. <laughs> we've been pushing pen and paper for <laughs> <laughs> um, a, a long time um but oh and it's partly because that's the that's that's the tool that's the way that our design process has worked mm. um i mean i don't know i mean is are we are we detached from reality in that sense I mean, I mean, I think we' think we're pr- I think to we're back up our own yeah. I think
0: we're privileged in that we can actually do pen and paper and be taken seriously uh but in a lot of settings a lot of junior, junior designers cannot uh and they don't feel comfortable doing it it feels like it really cha- a challenge that they would actually bring a sketch with a pencil uh, and and draw on that but I, what i what what i feel is missing a lot is that collaborative sketching as well on whiteboards together with clients together with users uh, i don't see a lot of that uh, happening uh, so just having that confidence to lead other people into helping you Sketch because you cannot do that. It's what 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 these tools also are, besides elitist, as you said, is that they're not inclusive at all. Uh, you can't let the client in and help you sketch on it, and that's what I, I feel is missing. If you want to be really really <laughs> a really really good, get a really good solution based on what other people are trying to say. Sometimes they can't mm. say it with words, but they can say it by drawing, and and yeah. and being having an inclusive tool can be a really important part of that.
1: Yeah, and I think now we're in that situation where there's a lot of um, um, you know remote um, design di- design you know design work going on, and teams are meeting um, digitally rather than you know, in the same room, which can at times f- make this kind of thing even more um, difficult to achieve where you've got co-design happening in a digital tool. But um, but one thing I've tried to do sometimes is is you know allow the design to happen with even just Post-it notes. Yeah. That you can have, you you don't need to, you don't need to have details. You can you can use a post-it note as a as a block of space in a in a in a concept. Mm. I mean, you could maybe even size the post-it according to what you maybe think how much place it would take in this interface. Mm. But you can still, you don't need to draw something that looks like anything. You can actually just use a, a descriptive label amongst your team, as long as you all understand what you're talking about. You can work together on it. Yeah.
0: Just to give people more ideas, one thing I did recently was having, uh, these were healthcare workers. uh, In that case, we actually cut out like interface elements that were printed out and just threw them onto a table and they had so much fun just playing around with those and building oh, a website. Yeah. So that was almost like using a design tool, <laughs> like Figma, but doing it. Uh, I mean, manually on, on paper or on a, on a table on a desk with real paper, and just yeah. you made some Lego for them. I mean, and that's that's yeah, exactly. I made Lego for them, uh, but mm. I was in, in involving them in, in a way that a lot of these tools won't uh, let you do, and that that's really the point of an exercise like that.
1: Yeah. Mm. I think another thing that you can do, if you are embedded in an organisation mm. which requires you to use a tool like Figma or um, a design system or something that is um, mm. effectively a, a very constrained box of Lego, then what you can do personally is start with pen and paper. Yeah, you can you can do some sketching or you mm-hmm. can do some scribbling down somewhere um, before you leap in. Um, and another suggestion um, that um, Emily's got in the um, article. Um, is remember to play
0: yes oh i love that sketch, that's the sketch best one Sketch the weirdest
1: yeah. idea you can come mm. up with even even drawing some anti patterns and just play with stuff mm. this again is a is a exercise that's really really um, you know made for doing outside of the digital screen mm. and you can do it personally so you're doing the exercise. This is like you doing a, a kind of um, a session at the gym before going to work or, you know, during a break or something. You're actually mm-hmm. putting putting these, yeah, you know, your brain, your creative brain to work and trying out some of these things. And then, yeah, maybe then you do go into um, the normal design flow that you have at your organization. But you've, you now are fit and healthy.
0: Yes. I think, I mean, that's, uh, that's the most important takeaway, I think, just that remember to play. Uh, yeah. And I, I'm fond of the last one as well. Share the mess. Uh don't ha- hold on to those rough sketches. Uh, it doesn't have to be pretty. And I'm, I applaud you if it isn't pretty because that means that we can b- more easily work on it together and play around with it.
1: Yeah. It's down to just sharing mm-hmm. and communicating. Yeah. Um, which loops back to what she says at the beginning of our um, article about what she learned in design school and that whole thing about communicating ideas. And you no know, if you have something that can communicate your idea, then it works.
0: Yep, exactly.
1: Have we got some good recommended listening for people?
0: Oh, we do. Uh, one of my favorite ones is uh, Paper Prototypes, uh, episode 209. I think that was a design school that... what I think it wasn't it in Instagram. They posted a video, an Instagram video of a paper prototype, and they got so, so much criticism for that. And so yep. we... Went in there and talked about sketching again and the importance of low fidelity prototypes.
1: Hmm. Another one that um, I think you should listen to—we've um, almost certainly suggested this before—but it is one of those ones you need to keep back, go back, keep going back to and listen to—is visual thinking with Everlotta Lotta Lam, um, episode two hundred and thirty-four, hmm. um, where she talks about the well, some of the benefits of, of, of using pen and paper to explore your thoughts.
0: Nice. I love that one as well. That's like my mantra, that episode.
1: (laughs) So all in all though, it's okay. Figma's bought Adobe,
0: (laughs) but design will go on. (laughs) So the links to these articles can of course be found in our show notes on uxpodcast.com. And one of our teams of volunteers is one that listens to episodes ahead of publishing and Notes down relevant links that come up during the show. And this team could really do with some extra people. So if you'd like to help. In
1: fact, Peg, yeah. to interrupt a little bit, all our teams could do with extra people. That's true.
0: That's a very good mm. point.
1: <laughs> transcript, yeah. So transcript help, um, reference help, and publishing. Yeah. Um, especially the transcript and the um, uh, references. Always looking for lovely listeners to help us there.
0: So just email us at hey at uxpodcast.com, which is a Swedish hey with a J or an English hey with a Y. (laughs) Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side.
1: What do you get when two giraffes collide?
0: I don't know, James. What do you get when two giraffes collide? A giraffic jam. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, you found one that related. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 to be honest, I'm going to do a bonus one because we 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 missed an episode of doing a joke. So this time you're going to get two. Oh right? wow. What did the traffic light say
0: to the car. <laughs> I don't know James, what did the traffic light say to the car?
1: Don't look, I'm changing.